Thank you. Well, I just have to, I just have to clarify that um, Jared and Ann were the ones that got us started planning. Oh, we're doing the offering? Oh, let's do it. Do the offering. Good. And uh, Jared and Ann are the one who got, they're the ones who got us started church planting uh, clear back in the mid-1990s. Uh, Life Center was growing rapidly. We were adding services, and you guys came and challenged me and said maybe instead of adding a service, you should think about planting a church and uh, started dreaming and doing that. And gosh, once we got started, once we started popping those babies out, we couldn't stop. It was like <laughs> one after another. But uh, so thank you to Jared. And you know you have great pastors, don't you? Yeah, they're awesome. They're legends. They're legends. Both of them are legends, I'm telling you. So, and uh, thank you, Ann. You mentioned, you know, the ducks winning yesterday, and you mentioned the beeves, and then right the last minute, she threw in the cougs. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for throwing in the cougs. And um, so, so just so you know, uh, I went to, I graduated from Northwest Christian University in Eugene, who has a reciprocal agreement with the U of O, so I took class at the U of O, so I'm, I'm like a duck from way back. But the thing is, when you, when you go live 42 years in Cougarville, you know, yeah, you got a roof with the Cougs. So every year I'm kind of torn, like this next weekend. Y'all know what's coming next, next Saturday, don't you? It's the Cougs and Ducks, and so I'm always a little torn on that. But I do have some added incentives. So like last year, uh, one of my pastor buddies here in the Portland area uh, and a couple other pastors with him, uh, they were talking smack about the Ducks beating the Cougs, and I said, no, nah, I think the Cougs are going to win this year. And one of them said, put your money where your mouth is, pal. And he said, let's have a bet. He said, uh, you know, you take the Cougs, I'll take the Ducks. And uh, the loser pays for four rounds of golf at Pumpkin Ridge for the four of us. Well, that's about 100 bucks a drop, you know, per guy. So it's a $400 bet. I said, you betcha. And, <laughs> and, the, and the Cougars won, huh? Cougars won, I got free golf, it's awesome. But of course, as soon as it was over, he said, we're up for next year. So I got another $400 bet. I want the ushers to come again, please. We're going to take another offering right now. I'm going to need some help because I am not feeling so confident this year. You all know what I'm saying? I think, I think the quackers are going to win this one. So, but I'm going to be buying golf probably. All right. So, <laughs> yeah, just pray. Yeah, thank you. I love that. Good. <laughs> So uh, today, I want to talk with you about being unoffendable, being unoffendable. And there's actually a book that's entitled Unoffendable. I think we've got a picture of it. There it is, by Brant Hansen. I first heard of this book probably three years ago. One of my, one of my youth guys uh, told me about it. In fact, he's preaching today right now in my absence. Uh, but he told me about this book and told me it's all about letting go of your anger and being unoffendable. And, you know, he said, like, he says, no anger at all, and not even righteous. It just ticked me off. You know, I just thought, <laughs> bothered me. But I read this book and was deeply convicted by it and uh, was so moved by it that I ended up doing a sermon series at our church. And I titled the series, Let It Go. And I dressed up as Ilsa, I sang and danced, the whole thing. No, I didn't. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, uh, did this series, Let It Go. And when I started the series, I told our church, I said, this may be one of the most important series that I've done in the 41 years that I've been here at that time. And uh, I said that because I knew so many people who were in the grips of unforgiveness. 
that uh, is just really easy, isn't it? It's easy to get hurt, to get offended, and then to hang on to that. And I talk to so many people who, when we talk about forgiveness, they'll say, well, yeah, but that person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. That person hasn't repented. They haven't, they haven't owned up. They haven't acknowledged they're wrong. I can't let them off the hook. I hear all those kinds of things, and I always come back to one thing. I tell people, you need to forgive them, not for their sake. You need to forgive them for your sake. Because you not forgiving, that's like, that's like you drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It doesn't work. So forgive for your sake, become unoffendable. That's what we're going to talk about today, becoming an unoffendable person. And so um, I'll start with, the, well, first I'll just say that being offended today is a, is a national sport. Isn't it? I mean, everybody is so thin-skinned, and it just doesn't take much to offend us at all. Uh, there's a pastor named Ed Roll who tells this great story. He says, during a recent baptism, I paraphrased a passage of Scripture to fit the situation. And the Scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.17, and he said, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature in Christ. Now, he added the she in there because he was baptizing a young woman, right? Made perfect sense. Well, the next morning, he's going through uh, the, the notes, the prayer requests, and <laughs> one of the prayer requests was addressed to him, and it called him out for daring to change the infallible, inerrant, unchangeable word of God. When the Bible says he, it means he. To change it to fit your rampant feminist agenda is the worst kind of heresy. <laughs> Phew. Wow. He says, most days I would have tossed it in the trash with the hope that he'd buy a better laxative. <laughs> he says, but, but that particular Monday, the note really scorched me, and I love this. He says, I wasted an hour writing a scathing reply, even though the note was unsigned. <laughs> have you ever done that? Yeah. yeah. Well, at lunch, I told a buddy about it, and he said, why did that make you so angry? And I said, I don't know, I'm just so sick of stupid people and their stupid comments and their stupid inability to rejoice that someone made a public declaration of faith. I'd like to show that guy a little heresy right across the jaw. And his friend said, you got a little anger problem, don't you? And I said, of course not, and it ticks me off that you'd even say that. <laughs> well, I read that story and it spoke to me because... I cannot tell you how many times I've gotten a letter like that or an email like that or a card like that. In fact, I tell my church all the time, I say, I'm an equal opportunity offender. If you come here very long, I'm sure to say something that will offend you. Isn't that right? And anybody who speaks in front of people knows about that. It just is inevitable that you'll offend someone. And I got to be honest with you and tell you that for years... Those notes, those emails, those letters really bothered me. And uh, some, I mean, I could have a great Sunday, and on Monday get a note like that, and it would ruin the rest of the week. I'd wear that thing all week long. Finally, I don't know if it's just a function of old age or what, but finally, I'm getting to a point where I'm able to read that stuff and let it go. Just let it go and not hang on to it. And so that's what I want to talk about with you. I want to talk about becoming unoffendable, becoming a person that that stuff just rolls off your back like water off a duck's back. A duck. <laughs> Whew, I'm good. All right. Let's talk about being unoffendable. Three things on your outline. Number one. Number one, examples of being offended. So the word offended just means, uh, if you look it up, it means to be annoyed, to be hurt, to be 
resentful or angry, to feel insulted, all those different things. And I thought maybe just a couple stories from the Bible would, uh, that would be examples of taking offense would be good for us. So the first story, we've got one old, one new. So the Old Testament story is from uh, 1 Samuel 25. And I'll just tell you the story. It tells the story of David and his men, his little army of men living in the wilderness, avoiding the, uh, the murderous King Saul who was chasing him. Well, while David's men were living out there, they provided protection for a wealthy local rancher named Nabal. They watched over his large flocks in the wilderness. And in return, one day, David asked Nabal to provide some food for a party, a festive meal for David and his men. And Nabal responded by hurling insults at David's messengers. Well, David's messengers come and reported to David. And when David hears these insults, he gets offended. And his response is to say, all right, men, each of you strap on your sword. And they mounted up, and they were going to ride in and kill, they're going to kill Nabal and everybody related to him. Now, this is a major overreaction. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Someone insults you, strap on your swords, we're going to go kill them all. So, just a quick question. How many of you are overreactors? Do we have any overreactors? Oh, there's some of you going like, some of you boldly saying, that's me. Yeah, some of you, yeah. I'm a major overreactor too. Now, I'll tell you something. Uh, uh, getting angry, getting offended and getting angry never makes someone smarter. Ever. In fact, this is not just a statement. This is scientifically backed up. When you get angry, the cerebral cortex, the smart part of your brain shuts down. And you start functioning from a different part of your brain that's not so smart. It never makes you smarter. David's anger didn't make him smarter. It made him murderous. So Lane and I have five kids, all grown. Uh, one of them's in heaven. The one in heaven, Jeff, our number two son, died just before his 23rd birthday. Uh, that's another story. But uh, Jeff had Asperger's syndrome. And um, it's a form of high-functioning autism. And we often say that, uh, that Jeff required more time, energy, and attention than the other four kids combined. It was, it was, he was a project. But here's the other thing. Jeff knew how to push my buttons. Anybody here have a kid that knew how, knows how to push your buttons, huh? You all know what I'm talking about? Oh, you have five of them? Oh, oh you have eight of them. Wow. We're going to stop and pray for you right now. I'm telling you. So Jeff could push my buttons. I raised my hand because I'm a major overreactor. Well, one time when Jeff was a teenager, he went rock climbing with a guy named Stan from our church. Stan was, that's what he did professionally. And uh, he took several of the young guys rock climbing. And uh, Stan was up at the top. The guys were all roped in, of course. And Jeff gets about two-thirds of the way up this rock face. It's probably 30 feet tall. He gets about two-thirds of the way up, and he freezes. He gets, he gets scared, and he just freezes. And he looks up at Stan up above, and he says, I can't do it. And Stan doesn't say a thing. And Jeff just hangs there for a little while and then scampers on up to the top. And later on, I'm telling my friend Rick, Rick is my best friend, my associate pastor, and I'm telling Rick this story. And uh, when I get all done, Rick looks at me and smiles and he says, Joe, you could learn something from that. <laughs> now, we all need friends who can say that kind of stuff to us, don't we? Yeah. He says, you can learn something from that. And I said, what's that? And he said, you could learn to underreact. And he just reminded me, of course, that I am a major overreactor. And he says, here's Jeff hanging there on the rock wall. And all Stan did was nothing. He just underreacted to Jeff's statement, I can't do it. And Jeff climbed on up. So that became my little mantra, underreact. All of you major overreactors out there, 
Try this, underreact. So Jeff, for example, would get mad at Lena. He'd say something to her. And I just want to tell you that when any of my kids badmouth their mom, Papa Bear stands up. You all know what I'm talking about? I'm going to defend my wife. And the problem was when I would do that angrily with Jeff, it only poured gas on the fire. So I learned to underreact. Now, that didn't mean I didn't say anything, but it meant that I said something in a very calm, quiet voice. Jeff, please don't talk to your mom that way. And what happened was instead of the fight escalating, Jeff would go to his room. Ten minutes later, he'd come back up and say, Mom, I'm sorry. Underreact. It changed my relationship with Jeff. So for all you major overreactors out there, underreact. Now, David could have learned something here. Because David overreacts, right? He straps on his sword and he's going to go kill these people. But he didn't end up killing everyone. Why? Because Nabal's wife, Abigail, intervened. Abigail came to the rescue. She heard what was about to happen and she thought, oh, we're in trouble. So she put together the food that David requested, sent it on ahead, and then appealed to David. She literally talked David off the ledge, right? She talked him down from his anger. Who's your Abigail? Do you have anybody in your life who, when you get a little upset, can kind of talk you down, talk you off the ledge? Lena's done that for me many times. Her, fa- her, her dad, my father-in-law, Pastor Noel, who lived with us the last 24 years of his life, he did that a lot for me. And Rick, my friend whom I mentioned, did that for me. But all of us need Abigails in our lives, don't we? We need people who, when we get a little wound up, can talk us down and help us underreact. So there's the Old Testament story. David got offended. Thankfully, Abigail talked him back. Getting offended never makes you smarter. Now, the New Testament story is in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we'll begin at verse 1. And uh, here's what it says. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. What was his hometown? Nazareth, right. So he goes to Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they what? They they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. There at the end of verse 3, it says they took offense at him. The Greek word there is skandalizo. We get which word from it? Scandalized. They were scandalized by Jesus. Why? Because they thought they knew him. They said, this is Jesus. He's, He's from here. He grew up here. We changed his diapers. We watched this boy grow up. Now he thinks he's some kind of a big shot rabbi. Y'all know the definition of an expert? An expert's someone with a briefcase 100 miles from home. And Jesus was home, right? Jesus was home. So he's not an expert here. We know who you are. You're not fooling us. That was the attitude. They were offended because they thought they knew Jesus, but they were wrong. They were dead wrong. They didn't know what they didn't know. And often we do the same thing. We get offended. We make judgments about other people when we really don't know. We don't know their hearts. We don't know their story or their motives. And we end up wrong, too. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and three to 5. And uh, we'll put it up on the screen here. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. So he says, I'm not worried about your judgment. You don't know me. 
Instead, he goes on and says, indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So he says, I don't even know enough about myself to judge me. But God knows. I'm going to leave that to him. Then verse 5, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what's hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. My word, that is a very strong statement, isn't it? Paul says, not only don't judge others, he says, I don't even judge myself. I don't, I don't even know my own heart well enough to make a judgment. When I make judgments about others, I'm flying almost entirely blind. I don't know their motives. I don't know the backstory. I don't know all the facts. And here's the big one. I don't even know what I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff I don't know, and I don't know that I don't know it. And yet I presume to make a judgment. So suspend your judgment. Simply admit that you don't know. And here's the thing. Instead of assuming the worst about other people, let's make positive attributions. Instead of assuming the worst, let's choose to believe the best. Now, the people of Nazareth made this mistake. They thought they knew. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. And look what it cost them. What did their offense, they took offense at Jesus, and what did it cost them? It cost them, it cost them Jesus. Because Jesus leaves. He's escorted out of town rather rudely. And does Jesus ever come back to Nazareth? The answer is no. This was his one visit there. This was their opportunity to hear Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and they missed it entirely because they took offense. And you know, I see people doing this today. I'll bet you know people like this too. I know a guy who used to go to our church who won't come anymore. Do you know why? Because someone in our church did something that offended him. And he says, I'll never go back there as long as that person's there. That offense is keeping him from following Jesus. I know people, I am not making this up, friends. I know people who won't come to our church because of the T-shirts the ushers wore one day. Who won't come to our church because someone had the audacity to wear a baseball cap during worship. Who won't come to, to our church. Be, I mean, the list goes on and on because the music's too loud. Whatever it is. And what I'm saying to you is, we need to get over that and be big enough people to say, I'm going to just let that stuff go and not let it keep me from Jesus. All right, are you offended yet? <laughs> Hang on, I got more. There's, all right, number two. So let's talk about how we can become unoffendable. Number two, how to become unoffendable. And I want to just have two really simple ideas, and they center around the great commandment, love God and love people. Okay, so here's the first one, letter A. Love God and then know who you are. Love God and know who you are. So my pastor uh, Jared Nan's pastor, too, was Roy Hicks Jr. Uh, we came from Faith Center in Eugene. And Roy Jr. Uh, was small in stature, but large in presence. He was about 5'8 and 150 pounds soaking wet. So he wasn't a real big guy, but when he walked into, into a room, I mean, he commanded the room. I mean, he just exuded presence and authority. And uh, one time, I, I was new on staff, only been there a couple months, and we were in a meeting with some people, and uh, one of the other pastors jokingly called him Junior. Because that was his name, Roy Hicks Junior. But he emphasized the Junior, which I took to be kind of a, a mocking comment about Roy's small stature. Oh, Junior. And I just immediately froze up like, uh-oh. And Roy laughed, acted like it didn't happen, and off they went. And afterwards, I went to this pastor. His name was Larry Gillis. You guys remember Larry. I went to Larry. I said, Larry, how could you say that? How could you call Roy Jr.? 
I mean, you call him pastor, your holiness, right reverend, whatever, but not junior, right? How could you call him junior? And Larry laughed and said, Roy knows who he is. That stuck with me. And several years later, I was going skiing with Roy, and I told him that little story. And he laughed, and then he quoted a scripture, Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing will make them stumble. Except he quoted it out of the King James, and nothing will offend them. Great peace have those who love thy law. Nothing will offend them. The idea there was really simple. That when you love God and you love God's word, you're not easily offended. And why is that? Because when you love God and you love God's word, you know who you really are and you know whose opinion really matters. Right? It's what God thinks about you that matters. So I want to tell you the truth about me. Are you ready? Here's the truth about me. I am God's dearly loved child. I'm deeply loved, I'm fully forgiven, I'm completely accepted by my Father. Here's what I've learned. What God thinks about me is far more important than what you think about me. And what God says about me is far more true than what you'll ever say about me. And that's what I want to base on this. So where do I get that? I get that from God's word. So when you love God and you love God's word, great peace have those who love your word and nothing shall offend them. I encourage you to be a person who soaks up God's word. Get to know what he says about himself, but also what he says about you. And then believe that what God says is far more important than what anyone else says. If you do that, you'll be hard to offend. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And when I watched Roy overlook that, what could have been an offense, that many people would have taken offense at, and Roy just overlooked it. My esteem... My respect for Roy grew by leaps and bounds. It was to his glory to overlook an offense. That made me respect him all the more because he wasn't thin-skinned and touchy. He wasn't easily offended. Do you know anyone who's thin-skinned and touchy? Huh? Don't look at them right now. Come on. <laughs> People who are thin-skinned and touchy, people who are easily offended, they are hard to live with, aren't they? They're really hard to live with. Don't be one of those people. And you don't have to be one of those people if you love the Lord and know what he says about you. Love God and know who you are. All right, here's the second thing. Letter B, I said it's the great commandment. So if it's love God, what's the second one? Love people, right? Love people and cover every offense. Love people and cover every offense. So there's a really interesting story in Genesis 9. Noah gets off the boat with his boys, plants a vineyard, and then he gets roaring drunk and lays naked in his tent. And in those days, to be naked, to be seen naked, was considered a great, uh, great shame. So Noah's son Ham went into the tent and sees his dad laying there naked, and what did he do? He went out and told his brothers. Yeah, think about that, right? Instead of covering his father up and just, psh, that's, that's the end of it, he goes, hey, guys, check this out. Dad's dead, drunk, and laying naked in the tent. Woo! <laughs> so the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth, take a blanket, and they back into the tent so that they don't see their father's nakedness and cover him up, and then they exit. And Ham ended up being cursed by his father, because of what he'd done. And Shem and Japheth were blessed. 
Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Love covers all offenses. So rather than repeating the story of someone's sin or offense, which just stirs up conflict, we cover it up. Now when I say cover it up, don't say this is not Watergate, okay? We're not talking about a conspiracy here, a cover-up in that sense. The word cover here in the Hebrew just means literally that, to cover it up or to forgive, to let it go. And that's the idea here is that, again, we're not talking about a conspiracy. We're just saying that love chooses to cover an offense. Love chooses to forgive. Rather than going out and broadcasting it and making it worse, love just covers it up. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever would foster love covers an offense. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So here's the deal. Every time you get hurt, every time someone offends you, you've got a choice, right? And the choice is I can go find someone else and tell them, do you want to hear what so-and-so just did to me or what they said to me or what? Let me tell you about this. And we spread that problem. Or we can choose to cover it up. And the Bible says that love always choose to cover over an offense. Why? Because love does what's best for another person no matter what it costs you. And what's best for that other person is not to broadcast their failure, but to cover it. 1 Peter 4.8, one more verse here. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. Love covers sins. So my wife, Lena's sitting right down here. My wife married a sinner. I know this is shocking. But my wife married a sinner. But if you listen to her talk about me, you'd think she married Jesus. Now, is this some kind of cover-up? Is this some kind of conspiracy that we've concocted to fool you? The answer is no. She loves me, and because she loves me, she chooses to cover my offenses, to put them out of sight and out of mind, and to focus on my good traits instead of my negative ones. Both my good traits. <laughs> I have a multitude of sins, and, and the truth is, if, if you wanted to know, you could ask her, and she knows them all. She's lived with me long enough, she knows all my sins. But she chooses to cover them, to not talk about them to forgive me rather than to broadcast them to other people. That's what love does. I like to remind young couples who are getting married that marriage is taking two sinners and putting them under the same roof for a lifetime. And that is a wicked soup, is it not? <laughs> that is a prescription for trouble. It takes a lot of forgiveness to make a marriage work. It takes a lot of forgiveness to make a friendship work. It takes a lot of forgiveness to make a church work. And love forgives. Love covers over a multitude of sins. So love each other deeply, Peter says. One last story before we go to the last point here. Uh, in his book, Unoffendable, Brand Hansen tells a really interesting story that I, I love. Um, he has a friend named Michael, and Michael decided to open a downtown coffee shop and bookstore in the midst of a very, very progressive neighborhood in his city. Uh, this progressive neighborhood had a thriving art scene, and uh, you know his plan was to open this Christian bookstore, Christian coffee shop, bringing Christian speakers and Christian musicians, and his plans were published in a local newspaper, and Brandt said you could just see the culture war coming. It turned out that this venue that Michael had bought had for a number of years been the site of a very large art exhibit, an art exhibit that was used to benefit AIDS research. And this particular exhibit, this big show that they put on, featured 
a lot of local art. And some of that art was, well, offensive. So everyone assumed uh, the leaders of this event would find a different venue. Well, Michael bumped into one of the event organizers on the street, and he told Michael that they'd be looking for a new site to host the event. And Michael surprised this guy by saying, please don't do that. We would be honored to host you. In fact, we will not only host you, we will pay for the catering. We'd love to have you. Well, this guy was shocked. He couldn't believe it. And then he pointed out, he says, you know, there's going to be some art there that you might find offensive. And Michael said, you're welcome to come anyway. So instead of being evicted by the Christians, the artists were welcomed. And Michael and his wife met everyone at the door, offering them chocolate-covered strawberries. Live music filled the room. It was the best exhibit the group had ever had. And Michael went around all night long, went around the room making friends, hugging everyone, and talking freely about Jesus. He told them about the goodness of God because he believes that everyone, everyone is yearning for a God like that. Well, there were some Christians in town who were offended. <laughs> they were offended at Michael. They wanted Michael to draw a line in the sand to get angry with these people. Instead, Michael loved them and fed them strawberries. Love covers a multitude of offenses. All right, so we're going to go to the last point, and some of you right now are thinking, okay, Joe, love God, love people, be unoffendable, yada, 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 sounds good, but let's get real. Let's get real. Sometimes you're going to get offended. Am I right? Yes. Sometimes you're going to get offended, and if I haven't offended you yet, maybe I will on this last point. Here we go, number three. What to do when you get offended? It's true. You can't help being offended. There are just some times when someone's going to say something or do something that annoys you, that frustrates you, that hurts you, that offends you. It happens. So what do you do then? Two responses. Letter A, first one, have a conversation. Have a conversation. There are so many conflicts that could be cleared up with an honest face-to-face conversation. Now, not all the time. It doesn't always work, and we're going to read a passage where Jesus acknowledges that. But many of our conflicts with other people could simply be cleared up by an honest face-to-face conversation. Now, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 18, verse 15, where he talks about sin and forgiveness. And here's what he says, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. All right? Go to them just between the two of you and have a conversation. Now, first of all, I want to acknowledge that Jesus is talking about sin here. And may I ask you a question? When you're offended, does it necessarily mean that the other person has sinned? No, because, I mean, sometimes someone can say something or do something. It's not a sin. It's just annoying, right? In fact, I'll I'll, I'll give you a little example of this. Uh, I was in a group of friends recently, a, a, a very diverse group racially. There are about seven or eight of us in the room and several races represented. And we were actually doing some work on some racial reconciliation stuff. And, um, and one of the white guys, we're getting toward the end of the meeting, and one of the white guys made a comment. He said, I'm colorblind. And uh, I glanced over at a couple of my friends of color who were in the room, and I saw their expressions change ever so slightly. And so I, I just, and there was kind of like this moment of awkward silence after he said it, just like, it just sat there. And so I turned to him, and I said, 
How do you think that makes a person of color feel when you say that? And he gave me a very surprised look, like, what are you talking about? And so I just said, why don't you ask them? And so he turned to a mutual friend of ours, a black man named Rodney, who was sitting there. And he says, Rodney, how does it make you feel when I say I'm colorblind? And Rodney, without missing a beat, said, it makes me feel like you don't see me. Because my color is part of who I am. And if you don't see that, you don't see me. Well, that started a great conversation. Truly, we had a terrific conversation around that. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Did the white man sin by saying he was colorblind? No, of course not. That's not a sin. He was, in fact, actually, what was he trying to say? He was saying, when he was saying I was colorblind, what was he trying to say? He was trying to say, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced. Yeah, I'm not prejudiced. And by the way, every person of color in the room understood that. They knew what he meant. But the way he said it came across as a little devaluing. And so again, we had a great conversation around that. And the conversation helped my friend see it differently, and it changed the way he talked. So... Sometimes you can have a conversation face-to-face, and it'll solve the problem. But I, I want to just emphasize this. But have that conversation how? Face-to-face. Yeah. Please don't paste, post it on Facebook. <laughs> Please don't try to resolve your issue on Instagram. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further. Please don't even try to resolve it with an email or a text. Get face-to-face so you can see each other. Why? So you can... See the facial expression so you can hear the tone of voice, so you can read each other. None of that can happen. We have a, we have a standing rule on our staff. We never, never resolve conflicts or problems with letters or emails or texts, ever. It's always face-to-face. So uh, when I, I told you, I get these letters and emails. You want to know what my standard response is? I've been doing this for years. I just I send a quick response back, and all I say is, I would love to talk with you about this. That's it. Nothing else. No defending myself, no explanations. I would love to talk with you about this. When can we do that? Have a face-to-face conversation. Well, not every story turns out as well as the one I just told. Some conversations don't resolve the problem. I said Jesus acknowledges that because in this passage in Matthew 18, he says, go to your brother in private, just the two of you, and if he listens, you've won your brother back. But what if he doesn't listen? Then, then what do you do? Then you take two or three with you, right? And, and, and the thing escalates, it steps up. Now remember, in this passage, Jesus is talking about sin. And he's saying if a person sins, you go to him, and if that doesn't work, then you take it to the next level. If that doesn't work, take it to the next level, right? Try to resolve the sin issue. Now, we're talking about an offense that may or may not be a sin. And so, uh, please, if you get offended, please don't feel like, you know, you need to necessarily take it to two or three and then to the church and then kick him out of the church because he offended you, you know, because you didn't like the T-shirt he wore. Please. Yeah, that's not what that passage means. Uh, so what do you do then? You say, okay, well, I did the talk, right? We did the one-on-one. We had the conversation, and it didn't work. What do you do? Letter B. Here's the last thing. Letter B. You let it go. You just let it go. Be a big enough person to just let it go. Sometimes you can resolve the problem with a conversation. Sometimes you can't. And when you can't, you've got another choice. Am I going to hang on to this? Am I going to be bitter and angry, or am I going to let it go? And the best choice, the best choice always is to let it go. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive each other. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you have a grievance against anyone? What should you do? 
He tells us, what should we do? Let it go. Forgive as God's forgiven you. Just let it go. By the way, the word forgive literally means to let it go. To send it away. That thing you've been hanging on to, that hurt, that offense, that anger, just open your hands and let it go. In the New Living Translation, it it puts it this way. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive who? Anyone. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Just let it go. All right, so I'll finish with a little story here. I'm a golfer. Not a very good one. And since I'm not a very good one, I get frustrated. Anybody? Do we have any golfers in the room? A few of you? Okay. Yeah. So those of you who play golf, do you you ever get frustrated? So, okay, this is true confession time, so you you can pray for me here, but... um, There are two times when I swear, plumbing and golf, those two times. (laughs) I am serious. And my, Lena will tell you, if we have, if something starts leaking in our house, there's plumbing, she'll say, please call a plumber. I don't want you to lose your salvation. You know, it's like, (laughs) so plumbing and golf. And so, uh, so I, I actually, I created a rule for myself just, you know, cause you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a holy man, you know, and, and I don't know that I should be swearing on the golf course. So I did, I created boundaries and my boundary, Jared, is I get one swear word for every stroke over double bogey. Huh? <laughs> so if I get a triple bogey, I get a swear word. And then the other rule is you can store them up for the end of the round if you're having a really bad day. <laughs> All right, now, yeah, now, yeah, 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 just, yeah. And if I offended you by what I just said, well, just let it go. Just let it go, friends, let it go. All right, so I tell you that to say that golf can be pretty frustrating for me, right? And I was reading a book trying to get better. This book had great advice in it. And here's here's a little thing I picked up from this book. Great idea. Here's what it says. The most important shot in golf is the next one, right? The most important shot in golf is the next one. That one you just hit that you're so mad about, you can't do a thing about that. That is over and done. You just have to what? Just let it go. Just let it go. Go find your ball wherever it is and hit that next shot. <laughs> just let it go. You know, I read that, and it really does help to, to, to play golf that way. It really helps. But here's the thing. Life is like golf. You know, the, next, the, the, the most important moment in life is? It, it's the next one, yeah. I can't, I, you know, I can't change what Jared did yesterday or a week ago or 10 years ago. I can't change that. Why in the world would I carry that around with me and keep myself all bottled up in the past? Why not just let that go and go live the next moment the best I can with Jesus? Does that make sense? Being offended, being angry never makes you smarter. Being offended, being angry, refusing to forgive only keeps you enslaved. So let it go. Just choose to let it go. Let's pray. Lord, I'll bet that most of us in the room have somebody that came to mind while I was giving this talk. Someone against whom we hold a grievance. Someone who's hurt us, annoyed us, offended us. And my prayer is that today, Lord, we would just choose to let that go. Just let it go. 
And that beyond that, Lord, that tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, that we would become unoffendable. We'd become people who know who we are and who know that what you say about us is the most important thing. And that we would choose to live a life of love, love that covers over offenses, love that forgives and just lets it go. Help us to live that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.